0: You're listening to the Tim Price Go Harvest podcast, a podcast designed to offer practical insight and encouragement to local church ministry leaders. We're thrilled to have you join us during this second season of the podcast and invite you to help us continue to reach new people
1: by hitting subscribe and the five-star rating. Blessings on you and your ministry. And for now, let's turn it over to Tim Price. Beulah Camp was awesome this year, and during the week, we had an opportunity to sit down with one of the preachers, Dr. Chris Bounds from Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. Clint and I got a chance to talk with him a little bit about the early church. He mentioned in one of his messages that he had a focus and an expertise in the first five centuries of the early church, and we just wanted to spend some time talking about that. So we took a little bit during one afternoon to sit down in the Harrisburg cabin. Thank you, Harrisburg. And we uh, spent some time letting Chris share some of his thoughts about the early church. And it's here on the podcast. We'll let Chris introduce himself here, and we will jump in. Thank you for listening.
0: Presently, I am a professor of theology at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And I'm also an ordained elder in the Arkansas Conference of the United Methodist Church. So I've worked as a youth pastor, I've been an associate pastor, have been a senior pastor, and really for about the last 20 years, I've uh, been in Christian higher education, uh, teaching Christian doctrine, ta- teaching Christian theology to undergraduate students.
1: That's cool. Um, <clears throat> and you mentioned, we were talking to Danny and Julie and some of them, you mentioned the that- You've gone to Asbury. Yes. So you know Hal
0: Hamilton. I do know Hal, Hal he's Hamilton. He's been on the podcast here. With we were in before. school together. Yeah. He, yeah. Was a, he was a couple of years ahead of me. And his brother, John, his younger brother, John, was a couple of years under me. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, so
1: you've been here preaching, and uh, it's been a great week. And there's one time, you mentioned a couple of things. That's why we roped you in here to do the podcast <laughs> here in the Harrisburg cabin. But, Good to be here. Um, one of them was the that verse that you said you often use as a blessing for students and family oh, yes, and other yes. people. Verse from Matthew, and and you said that and I kind of took note of that. Wanted to write that down. And- it,
0: it is it's it's my favorite verse in all of Scripture. It's Matthew chapter one verse twenty one, and this is the angel who has come to Joseph to explain to Joseph the miracle of the incarnation in the womb of Mary. And he says to Joseph, because in the ancient world, it was the responsibility of the father to name the children. So the angel says to, to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so uh, the incarnate son of God is given the name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, uh, because what is his purpose in coming? It is to save us from our sins. And when we think about that, I I, I mean, we immediately go to this idea that he saves us from our personal sins. And in our Wesleyan tradition, we talk about the guilt of sin and the power of sin and the nature of sin. So he's come to save us from our personal sins. But oftentimes we don't realize that we live enslaved, not just to our personal sins, but to the sins that have been committed against us that we live enslaved to the wounds that we carry from the sins that have been committed against us. And so Jesus comes to save us, not just from our personal sins, but he comes to save us from the sins that have been committed against us. And we see this perfectly in the Lord's Prayer, the holistic problem of sin. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, mm. both of those have got to be addressed by Christ if He's truly going to save us from our sins. Yeah, that's good. What is that verse again? Matthew Matthew 1. chapter one, verse twenty-one. Yeah,
1: cool. You, in one sermon you preached, um, Chris, you said just in passing, sort of, you said I've I've studied the early church, first five hundred is the early church, and and mm-hmm. kind of uh, really keyed in on that in terms of all that you've done over mm-hmm. the years. And one of the things that seems like people throw around a lot is um, th- saying things like, this is more like the early church than any other time, or the church needs to be like the early church, or we are like the early church. I mean, just like sure, uh, they throw sure. around that phrase, and, and um, you know, there's a lot of different angles you could take on that, and I realize this is a whole book or a whole semester, but <laughs> we've got about you know 10 minutes, and we just want to hear, like, is that true, and, and what, what sort of light can you set on that, just in a nutshell, like... How, what can we take from the early church and, and, you know, really go with, and and what
0: can we sort of say, wow, glad we've overcome that, or whatever the good, case is. Good, good. No, that's a good question. Let me make a distinction that I think is an important distinction. Oftentimes when people hear early church, they think New Testament church. And when I'm talking about the early church, as you mentioned, I'm really talking about the first five centuries, six centuries of uh, of Christianity. So it goes beyond Uh, what we find in uh, in the New Testament church. And I think sometimes, and we were talking about this earlier, that we can idolize uh, the New Testament church as if, you know, the the New Testament church was some pristine beauty, and uh, that we're always trying to get back to this primitive Christianity, this New Testament Christianity. But if you carefully read, for instance, the book of Acts, and you hear so many people say, I wish we could go back and be Acts chapter 2, or I wish we could be the church in in, in the book of Acts. And I'm I'm thinking, have you read Acts closely enough? I mean, have you really read it closely? And, and, And sometimes this is a sort of a rule of exegesis. When, especially when you're reading history, when you're reading uh, a story or a, a narrative, you have to ask the question, uh, is, is, is this simply a description of what takes place, or is this a prescription of the way that things should be? And let me say, the book of Acts is primarily description and not prescription. Uh, So, for instance, and I said this to you, you want to go back to Acts chapter 2. Of course, it's the day of Pentecost. But I want to tell you, that early church in the book of Acts is a racist church. It doesn't want to have anything to do with the Gentiles. And so do you want to go back uh, to being a a racist? Well, that's Acts chapter uh, 2. They didn't want to have, even when God reveals to Peter that uh, what God declares clean, man cannot, humanity cannot declare as unclean. He still doesn't get it. And you may remember, Paul had to rebuke. Peter, again, even after this event, uh, for his uh, sort of downplaying the the Gentiles. So it's a racist church. This is a a church that is squabbling in the cafeteria over the distribution of of food. I mean, this is Acts chapter 6. You know, Jesus told the disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost. Go into all the world. And even after the day of Pentecost, uh, the uh, New Testament church didn't want to leave Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They wanted to stay in Jerusalem. Sounds like a lot of churches today. And, and God had to bring a persecution to the church to actually get them to, to scatter. So all of this to say is we shouldn't look to the New Testament church as some sort of pristine beauty. Uh, actually, we see a lot of what we see in the contemporary church. Some of the same problems and the same issues are, are, are there because of the human condition is not any different, but what are some of the similarities? I think this is really the question that you're you're getting to. We are living in the United States today, and while some Christians and some leaders may uh, be kicking and screaming, we have entered into a post-Christian world, and uh, we have lived in a world in which uh, Christianity is on. The outside looking in. We no longer have power. We no longer have influence, in the sense of political uh, influence. We we don't have any political capital. We have spent it all uh, in 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 causes that I think, often in the end, uh, have been worse for the church as as a result of trying to to uh, uh, exercise our Christian convictions through political means and political will. That worked at some point in our country when we had sort of a common Christian culture. But we have become much more like the early church, first five centuries of Christianity, particularly the first four centuries of Christianity, when Christians were the minority and where Christians had no power uh, whatsoever. Uh, And so I think that what we can learn from the early church is, given uh, that we live in a cultural context today in which we have no real power, power to be exercised, at least politically, by way of legislation, by way of of law, you know, how do we be salt and light and leaven within our, our culture today? And uh, this is the early church. The early church uh went to the least and the last on the where did they do their ministry? their Their ministry was on the margins of society it It, it wasn't in the the corridors of power, uh, but it was in the margins of, of society. and so uh where they saw need and where they saw uh problems, um, you know they had no power except that of service that of taking the form of, of, of a servant and working with the people that uh, were the dregs and the, the refuse of uh, of society. And so um, they had no power, and yet they found places to be light and salt and, and leaven in the world and taking the posture, not of a king, but uh, uh, really embracing uh, the abdication of power, having no power uh, whatsoever, and finding places to uh, to, to serve uh, there. So that's one area. I I I think that's one of the greatest areas of of similarity. Uh, Does it seem like there. the church? I mean, that's awesome, and that's that's
1: really true. I think that's what people kind of are saying. I guess sometimes is the kind of the minority feel. Of, yes, yes, and and really the minority feel, or or kind of the persecution of sort of everybody kind of setting that to the side and that agenda, you know, doing their own thing and not
0: even really not even being against the church, just not even thinking of it. Right. And And this is the difference though. And I I will say this people want to talk about the church being persecuted today. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I I mean, that is to do such a disservice to our sisters and brothers in Christ that are in the middle East who are being beheaded mm -hmm. uh, and uh, who are being put to death uh, because of their faith in Christ this is to do a disservice to those places in the world where uh, ch- I mean where where Christians are being told to either renounce your faith in Jesus or we're going to sell your children into slavery in sexual servitude uh, I, yeah. I, I, I would tell that and that's the difference uh, in the early church dealt with really there were periods of severe persecution where identifying with Christ was putting your life, literally on the line. And, and we're far, far from yeah. that here in the United
1: States. That's definitely true. Well, I was just thinking the, the motivation that comes at, at whatever level of, of, you know, being in a place and that, that's definitely true. Nobody here has experienced anything quite like that, Yeah, yeah. but they have experienced what you described of being, um, having more of a podium to be on or a voice to speak into it because of the, the way the country
0: is founded and whatnot. There is a, uh, I think one of the real problems that we face, because we've been in this position of power, is that um, we have sat in judgment with people who don't agree with us or people who don't share our same values. And that is really sad. And And that's different than many leaders in the early church who uh, who lamented and uh, prayed for, experienced sorrow and anguish uh, over the lost world around them. You know, we just get angry, we get upset, and we judge them. How awful, how terrible these people are. But that wasn't the position of the, of, of the early church. They lament and pray for a lost and dying world around them. They really took seriously uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is, of course, addressing uh, the problem of a, of a man in the church who's sleeping with his father's wife, a, a case of sexual immorality. And Paul is trying to exercise discipline there. And he says this, this, this person, this believer who's doing this, needs to be excommunicated from the church. But he, he goes on to explain that we as Christians, there's no way we can get away from being in the world. Uh, we're going to be in the world, and he says, though our jo- our job is not to judge the world. How could we expect uh, someone apart from Christ, a culture apart from Christ, to live in a Christian way? So our job is not to judge the world, but we're to judge ourselves. And 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 um, at the very end of First Corinthians chapter five, and I, and I think that that is sort of an approach. Uh, that the early church took as it encountered the different cultures in which it was being made manifest and and I wonder if that is a a more helpful posture uh, for for believers today is that uh, you know God help us when we stand in condemnation and in judgment of, of, of those around us. How could they do otherwise? How could they do otherwise? You know, I, and, and this is why we need to, to be light and leaven and salt in the world. Not by trying to exercise power, but trying through our lives and what we do through the power of persuasion. The life that is full of grace. You know, um, Jesus was said to be full of grace and truth. I am reminded of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 who is said to be full of the Holy Spirit, but it also says he is full of grace, full of grace. And I really do believe that uh, Luke, when he says that he's full of grace, that there is something that is so winsome and compelling about his life that it just draws people to him. Oh, that the church would once again be full of the Holy Spirit and full of grace. There would be something so winsome, so attractive, by the very way that we live our lives, that it draws the least and last and the lost of the world to it.
2: Yeah, you said something that was uh, was great whenever we were talking about how things used to be, right? We used to have like this political power, when it, that's how we voted and all that kind of stuff, and we've kind of that's kind of gone away. We don't have that, what did you call it, equity? Or what did you, I forget the term that you actually used. But, um you know, uh, one thing that really stood out is then you talked about the early church and how they really focus on the margins. And this week, um, mm. our other speaker, uh, Matt Friedman, Friedman? Friedman. Friedman. Mm. He said something that's really stuck with me. Yeah. And when he said, just a simple phrase of, of, are we running towards the cries of our city? Yes. And he yes. said that, and it really broke my heart because you know looking at like just different churches and churches that I've been at I'm like have we been doing this and have we been you know living into the early church and how they were doing that you know so um that's one thing that's for me this week that I'm really gonna like run with and then take back is how can we reach those people in the margins and um Mm -hmm. so yeah that's really good
0: it was a powerful word uh, that yeah. Matt has been preaching this week. Matt Friedeman, who is a uh, professor at Wesley Biblical Seminary in, in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, and uh, a good and dear friend of mine who, who lives this out in, in his life. It is, this, it is this model, it is this posture that we must, that we must take. and, uh, and I'm, I'm convinced of this. I, I, I think about what it is to love and uh at the very heart of love and and there are many aspects to love, but at the heart of love is union. it really is is, is is union and so uh when we talk about going uh to uh the marginalized communities of the world uh and and in some sense identifying them we're we're talking about a creating a relationship, creating a a union uh with with them, but you can't do that if you don't go and and it's not enough to pray for them, as, as powerful and wonderful as prayer is. Prayer is still at a distance, mm-hmm. but we're called to enter into the pain and, and the suffering that exists uh, in, the, in, in the world. And, uh, and, and that becomes so, it's at the very heart of Philippians chapter 2. You know, often people want to talk about what is it to have the mind of Christ, you know, to think the very thoughts, you know, to speak. But, but Paul is very clear. The mind of Christ is pretty simple. It is nothing more and nothing less than taking the posture of a servant. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. And this is where the word emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. That's the mind of Christ. No more, no less than having the posture of a servant. Let me serve you. How can I serve? How can I serve you?
1: That is, that's really good. Local church pastors or a youth pastor somewhere just around in this, you know, post-Christian kind of culture and, and, um, all the different possibilities and all the, all the sort of Misfocus, kind of like we're sitting around hoping that the culture and the government can, you know, get prayer back in school type mindset. I mean, like we're, right, we're right. thinking about all these other things. Like what is like the one or two things that a uh, everyday church leader can be encouraged by? Well, you know, let me say
0: this. Um, uh, yes, it, it is really about discipleship that, that is, that is it. And this is where part of evangelicalism to miss the boat. It was just about getting people saved and even in our own Wesleyan context, even sanctified, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, but the whole purpose of that is to is is to, I mean to serve, not to be served. But uh, I think it's the issue of of, of discipleship. And uh, again, I don't know if you've had a chance to be a part of of uh, Matt's five Q. Uh, discipleship. Yeah, I read through the book in the back there. Oh, it's it's incredible. It's life-changing. And so what we want to do as pastors, youth pastors, senior pastors in churches, is to call people to discipleship. And in our Wesleyan tradition, to have them immersed in the means of grace. But it, it, oftentimes, where we fail, and, and uh, where we fail is we have them immersed in uh, what in our Wesleyan tradition we call uh, the works of piety, scripture reading, uh, in, in regard to prayer and, and fasting. But Wesley talks about these works of mercy, which has everything to do with visiting those who are in prison. Uh, taking care of the widow and orphans uh, among you, and uh, and and Wesley said that in many ways these works of of mercy are even more important than the works of uh, of piety. I don't know that I would guy. Both are important, uh, but bringing both of those together. And I think one of the problems that we've had in many churches is we tend to emphasize one or the other, and not bringing both of them strongly. Uh, Together, and so, and I don't mean to use this necessarily in any pejorative way, but our more liberal churches would be emphasis more on service, less, you know, the works of mercy, Mm -hmm. and our our more evangelical, more traditional uh, churches would be uh, more of a focus on 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 works of of uh, piety, but really our Wesleyan tradition at its best brings both of those uh, together, and so. really uh, how do we go about in the local church doing discipleship and immersing the people who've been entrusted into our care in, in this and i'm convinced it um discipleship doesn't take place in worship
1: hmm.
0: it doesn't take place in, in worship and a lot of times even youth group meetings especially in evangelical churches it becomes a glorified and and can nothing wrong it, it's just a, it's another form of worship and and so we're worshiping, we're preaching, we're 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 teaching, uh we're worshiping, um, uh, but we never do sort of discipleship wow. in, in addition to that. And and we need a focus on discipleship.
1: It that reminds me that Clint a lot of times what he says is it's great to be in ministry, but some of like the most crucial times are the van rides. And it's like we just think it'd be great. Airbag is right around the van with us between events because that's well, where all like, the conversation happens. all It, the, it is, <laughs> and you never it. know when these moments
0: yeah. are going to have these strategic moments that happen. And and again, this is a part of uh, a, a growing movement: is house churches and, and Christians in the first opening centuries of Christian did life together. We don't do life together. We worship together, but not a whole lot beyond worshiping together, but they did life together. And it's when you spend time together that increasingly you have these spontaneous conversations. You have these moments in which the Spirit of God shows up in a way that is, that is different. And uh, it's, um, it can be quite powerful. But doing life together, spending time together, uh, is essential in this discipleship process.
2: That's so good. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. And I wanted to ask, um, how can our listeners connect with you if they want to uh, find out more about you or if they want to get in contact with, with you about anything that uh, we talked
0: about today? That's, uh, that's good. I, I, I am always open to uh, people contacting me, but probably the, the easiest way to contact me is by way of email email. Uh, through the website of Indiana Wesleyan University. So you can go to Indiana Wesleyan. If you type in Chris Bounds or Christopher Bounds, uh, you can find my email address. My email address is all lowercase letters, chris, C-H-R-I-S dot Bounds, B-O-U-N-D-S at I N D W E S dot E-D-U.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll see you all next time on the Go Harvest podcast.
0: Good to be with you.
2: How many
1: sport coats do you have now that you brought that up? About uh, (laughs) (laughs) that was
0: a great little segment you said right there. (laughs) I have about uh, ten sports coats. I I do. I feel naked without. So when did that
1: start? That was hilarious the way you phrased all that. So when did you start wearing sport coats that you just always wear them no matter what?
0: I guess when I started to to, uh, when when I took a senior pastor position in 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 a church, I started wearing. And it's, you know, I might wear blue jeans and I might wear a, a, a T-shirt, but I'll always wear a sports coat. There's just something that seems to just maybe give it a little more level of dignity. Maybe, maybe. Not that I, I'm doing that. I, I think really probably it has more to do with uh, <laughs> a sports coat covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> it, it does. And and, and so it, it, it really began probably with, with that. this is ava andrews and i lead worship with
2: harvest ministry we would love to invite you to listen to some of our music on spotify amazon apple or wherever you like to listen over the years harvest has recorded worship music kids worship
0: instrumental and more you can find all the various albums at harvest music thanks